Uh, our reading this evening is uh, from the book of John, chapter 11, so please uh, meet me there. Uh, before I start the reading, I'd like to ask Michael to turn on his mic. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come, With her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. 
Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odour, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Interesting moments in recent evangelical history was the Jesus movement that took place on the west coast of the United States in the 1960s and 70s. During the 60s and 70s, many young people were starting to push back against societal norms in a very strong way. Lots of teenagers and young adults stood in opposition to many social institutions and sought relief from the ways of these, from these social institutions through psychedelic drugs and occult religions, thinking that this would fill the holes in their heart and help them find inner peace. As the American youth continued in their search for inner peace, some people found the only answer to eternal peace that they were looking for was to be found in a relationship with Christ. The search was over. The answer had been found. The desires of the generation could, be found, could find fulfillment in Christ. Suddenly, so many young people were flocking to churches and being baptized as they dedicated their lives to Christ. Because of the influx of many young people, the congregants in the pews started to look a little bit different than they did previously, leading many church leaders into figuring out how they can hold on to and direct this youthful energy to continue reaching more and more people with the good news of the gospel. The desire sparked many changes in the evangelical church, particularly around the style of contemporary Christian music, which would explode and invite more young people to check out their church and give their lives to Christ. What made this movement so successful in reaching the new generation is that the leaders of this movement were able to present the gospel in a way that provided answers for that generation's deepest concerns. These leaders did not change the content of the gospel at all, but changed the way that it was presented so that they could reach the next generation. While we wouldn't necessarily agree with all of the ministry practices of the leaders of the Jesus movement because of some of their apparent flaws, these leaders understood that each generation is looking for God in their own way. But the only way that they will ever find God is through Jesus Christ. The reason that the youth in the 60s and 70s, as well as all of us here right now, are searching for God is because we were created to be in communion with God. When our first parents sinned, we were separated from God and could no longer exist as unholy people in the holy presence of our God. 
This left us feeling empty, trying to fill the holes of our hearts with more sin, eventually leading us to embrace the death that our sin brings. Our sin and our separation from God effectively ended our lives. We praise God, though, that this isn't the end of the story. For Jesus, the Son of God, came down from heaven to earth to show his people that sin was not going to be the end of their lives. Jesus would come down and through his life, death, and resurrection, prove to us that he is the resurrection and the life that we have been searching for. Jesus is the one who our souls yearn for and our hearts desire. He is the one to save us from our deaths by raising us into new life with him. So tonight, as we jump into John chapter 11, we will see Jesus' fifth I am statement in the Gospel of John, where he says that I am the resurrection and the life. Throughout, Throughout John's Gospel, we see Jesus claim to be the bread of life, the water of life, and the light of life. In this passage, Jesus claims to give life itself. Saying that, this saying being even more extreme than what has come before it, but nonetheless true. Tonight, we will use Lazarus as our entry point for this passage and see not only what Jesus did for Lazarus, but what Jesus does for the conversion of the believer. We will see number one, the necessity of death. Number two, the power of Christ. And number three, the glory of the resurrection. Let's begin by looking at the necessity of death in verses 1 through 16. Our story begins this evening with Jesus hearing that Lazarus of Bethany was ill. Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha, two of Jesus' disciples and friends that we see throughout the Gospels. You may remember them from the story in Luke 10, where Mary sits at the feet of Jesus to listen to him, while Martha is, is taking care of the home and being distracted by that. Then Jesus tells Martha to slow down and sit like Mary at his feet and choose the good portion in him. Or you may know Martha as well from John 12 or Mark 14, where Jesus is anointed by Martha with expensive ointment in preparation for Jesus' burial. To state it clearly, Jesus had a close relationship with Mary Martha, and Lazarus, evidenced by Mary and Martha sending a messenger directly to him with the message simply being, the one whom you love is ill, which we see here in verse 3. This then leads us to one of probably the most interesting responses from Jesus to a request for healing. In other cases throughout the gospel, when people would ask Jesus to be healed, Jesus would heal the person almost immediately. Think back to John chapter 4 when Jesus heals the Roman official's son. The Roman official seeks after Jesus and tells him about his dying son. And Jesus tells the official that his son has already been healed and that he doesn't even need to see his son in person. All of this for a Roman official that he just met and for a child whom he did not know in, in this earthly life. In John 11, when Jesus hears about Lazarus' illness, He doesn't leave to go see his friend, nor does he heal him from afar. 
But Jesus stays where he is for two more days so that the glory of God might be on display and the Son of God might be glorified through it. After two days of staying where he is, Jesus then decides to go see his friends in Bethany, knowing that at this point, Lazarus has died. The town of Bethany itself, being about two miles from Jerusalem, causes the disciples to worry. You see, previously in John chapter 10, Jesus has revealed to the Jews that he and the Father are one, which, to which the Jews respond by attempting to stone him. Jesus then returning to Bethany seemed like a recipe for disaster for the disciples. But for Jesus, he knows that the will of the Father is on his side. There is no need to worry about stumbling because the light of the world is with them. Lazarus has died and Jesus wants to go to him so that he can perform one of the greatest displays of his power as the son of God and bring many to belief in him and allow himself to be glorified. You know, when we hear about this desire for Jesus to show off his power and glorify himself, sometimes we can become a little bit uncomfortable when hearing this. For pretty much all of us, when we hear about someone trying to show themselves off or show off their power, we think that they are showboating or trying to brag about how great they are, bringing in compliments and praise that they think that they deserve. If our God is so powerful, if he is so perfect, if he is so self-sufficient as he is, then what is the purpose of Jesus waiting a couple of days to go heal Lazarus? Why does Jesus want to glorify himself and call us to glorify and praise him? Doesn't this seem self-centered instead of loving? Well, I believe John Piper does a great job at answering this question. He gave a talk called, Is God for Us or for Himself? And in it, he says that God being for himself is actually in pursuit of God being loving and God being for us. In the relationship that we have with God, he gives to us his very self by revealing to us who he is in Christ and then indwelling inside of us with the Holy Spirit. We have full access to God in our relationship with him. This relationship then causes us to pursue and glorify God, being the pinnacle of our enjoyment in him. Piper quotes C.S. Lewis from his book on the Psalms when Lewis writes this. He says, But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless, sometimes even if, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise is not merely expresses but complements the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. This means that our praise and our enjoyment of God is complete when we are praising God. God then, being for himself, is at the same time for us as his people. We don't, have to, we don't praise our Savior Jesus because he is some egotistical religious leader demanding our praise. 
We praise Jesus because when we do, we feel the full benefits of what it means to be participating in our union with him and embracing the work that he has done in our lives. So then what does this have to do with death? My point for this is the necessity of death. Where does death fall into this? Why is death not only necessary in the story for Lazarus, but also for us in the lives of modern day Christians? Well, I want to propose to you tonight that death is necessary because through it, the Christian can fully participate in Christ's work and praise him for what he is doing. Before Christ, we were all dead in our sins. But when we were converted, we realized that the sinful lifestyles we had and, we, and the burdens we were bearing needed forgiveness. We came to Christ and he brought us then into an intimate union with him. Our old lives then were put to death. Our lives, which were under the condemnation of our sins, were nailed to the cross as Jesus took that death that we had deserved. In our union with Christ, we participate in his death. And then we participate in his resurrection and his life because Jesus has conquered this death and rose again. We become conquerors of death with Christ and then immediately turn to glorify him. So why then is death necessary? Because in our death, God can put our, uh, his full glory on display and reveal himself to his people. In our story of Lazarus, Jesus uses the death of his friend to establish that he is the son of God and display his power for all to see, leading, to pe leading people to realize who he is and place their trust in him. In our modern day, Jesus uses his own death to take the punishment from his people and bring his people into union with him. This way they can share in his death and gain new life in Christ. This means that the necessary death is for our benefit because in it we lose our sinful lives in participating with Christ's death and gain a new life in participating in his resurrection. So each day, then when we face the temptation to sin, when it feels like it's coming at us from all different sides, when we feel trapped by old disastrous habits, or when we feel like there is no more grace available to us, we can now know confidently that the death that was demanded by our sin has been paid for. Our Savior has died in our place, taking away the death that our sin necessitated. We can then be like the Apostle Thomas, as he says here in verse 16, let us go with Jesus that we may die with him, which in reality gives us the best life that we could ever live. Put your sin to death and live your life in Christ. Because once we start to put to death our old selves and embrace our identity in Christ, then we can make our lives living hallmarks of praising God. We should be making this praise known to everyone around us, letting it be the marker of our lives that people know us by. When someone tomorrow at work or school asks you how your weekend was, tell them about how church was today. 
when you run into your neighbor as you're leaving for church next Sunday, invite them to come along with you. But don't do it out of performance or obligation, but let your love of God drive this desire to invite others into this very same love. Christ has died in your place, and our joy for this gift should characterize our entire life. Let's look back at John chapter 11. Pick up with me and read verses 17 through 27. Text says this, it says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When Jesus finally arrives in Bethany, it has been four days since, Jesus, uh, since Lazarus has been put into the tomb, meaning that his bo body would start to be withering away and decomposing. You see, there was this rabbinical belief that was going around in this time where the soul of a person hovers over the dead body for about three days, attempting to re-enter it whenever possible. As soon as the appearance of the body would start to change, as the body would start decomposing, the soul would depart knowing that their death was irreversible. Jesus waited till this three-day period was over so that there was no doubt in what he was doing in the raising of Lazarus. This is where we come to our second heading for this evening, which is simply titled, The Power of Christ. When Martha finds out that Jesus is coming to see them, she runs out of the house to go meet Jesus on the road. She runs up to him in both her grief and her faith simultaneously and recognizes that Lazarus would still be alive if Jesus had only been there to heal him. This is because of Martha's belief that Jesus is the Christ and that the Father will give to him whatever he asks. She's not running up to Jesus, accusing him of failing to respond to their message to heal her brother, but she is showing to Jesus and us as the audience that she has not lost faith in who Jesus is as a result of Lazarus' death. Jesus then responds with something that you would let most likely hear at most Christian funerals, but has a completely different meaning to it. Jesus tells Martha simply that Lazarus will rise again. To Martha and to pretty much any, any other Jewish person who would have heard this, there wouldn't be much of a surprise. On the last day, people will rise again by the power of God, and Martha acknowledges this orthodox belief here in verse 24 where she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. But what Martha is failing to do is recognize exactly what Jesus is meaning here. 
So Jesus responds to her and tells her simply that he is the resurrection and the life. When Jesus makes this statement, he is referring to two complementary ideas that we see here in verses 25 and 26. So I'm going to read them again to you quickly. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus, as the resurrection, means that anyone who believes in him, though he dies, shall live, as said in the second half here of verse 25. This is what Jesus is looking forward to on the last day, where those who are in Christ will be raised from the dead. Jesus himself will be the driving force behind his people being resurrected. For those who are outside of Christ will not be resurrected on the last day. He says this to confirm Martha's belief that God's people will be raised on the last day, but shifts her belief from some abstract idea instead to Christ himself, the one who raises his people. Jesus then, also being the life, as he says here, refers to everyone who, who lives and believes in Christ shall, in some sense, never die. When someone comes to Christ, they are given new life when they come into union with him, giving the person the benefits of eternal life with Christ immediately. There is no waiting period that needs to be covered in order for them to earn eternal life, but it is freely given to God's people immediately so they have a hold on this eternal life. This means that we don't have to wait for death to start enjoying the benefits of new life in Christ but instead we can enjoy them now as God's beloved children. It's like this. It's like if you were homeless and I were to tell you that I am holding the keys in my hand to your dream home and was going to give them to you. It has all the space that you could ever need with the best kitchen, the comfiest furniture, the biggest TV, the coziest fireplace, and the largest library that you could ever imagine. Everything that you ever could want is in this house and then some. As soon as I hand you the keys to that front door, you are no longer homeless. You wouldn't have visited this home before, but it is yours as soon as I hand you the keys. The same is what Jesus is saying here. If you are in union with Christ right now, you have the resurrection and the life right now. You may not be in your resurrected body right now, but you can start living knowing that you have a claim over it in Christ. In some senses, death will never touch you because you have life waiting for you in the kingdom of heaven. And God has handed you the keys to the front gate of that kingdom. Through our union with Christ, your dream home has been given to you already. Our life then in Christ should not be thought of as some future event, but something that we need to be embracing now. When we face the temptation to sin, when someone invites us to do something that we know is not honoring to God, or when we think of serving ourselves instead of serving others, we should think about our identity and our life in Christ now and let that drive our actions 
We also then should know that our faith in Jesus means that we will never be hopeless as a result of any physical or mental suffering that we might experience here in this life. We know that right now, in this moment, we as Christians have a hold of the joy of eternal life in Christ because of our union with him. Now finally, let's look at our third heading for tonight. And that is simply the glory of the resurrection found in verses 27 through the end. After talking with Jesus, Martha runs back home to grab her sister Mary and bring her before Jesus. Mary goes out to seek Jesus followed by the Jews who had come to Bethany to help them grieve. When Mary does find Jesus, she immediately falls at his feet and starts weeping. She says almost the same thing as her sister Martha, professing her belief that Lazarus would still be alive if Jesus would have been there. And again, this isn't out of a rebuke for Jesus, but acknowledging Jesus' power while acknowledging her own grief with the death of her brother. Our author John then gives us some insight into our Savior's heart as he is processing the scene that is happening in front of him. Verses 33 through 35 say this, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus, the son of God, is weeping in front of his people. You know, while the chapter and verse numbers may not be part of the inspired text, I believe that Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury, when he added them around 1227, he made a great choice of making John 1135 the shortest verse in our Bible. Jesus is weeping, and we as the audience, as readers, need to be asking why. We see Jesus respond inwardly to Mary's pain by being greatly troubled. Even though we know that he is about to raise Lazarus, this is something that he's already revealed to us in the beginning of the chapter. So we know that Jesus is not weeping because Lazarus has simply died, for he's about to come back to life. So then why is it that Jesus is weeping? What is the primary emotion that is driving his sobbing? The translation of Jesus being deeply moved here in the ESV as well as the NIV are okay. But D.A. Carson, the scholar, doesn't think it's intense enough, suggesting instead that the Greek word here implies anger and outrage. Jesus is angry because of the sin and the sorrow and the death that have plagued this world. This sin generates his outrage, which then moves him to grief as he watches Mary, a person that he loves dearly, be in such pain and misery because of, the, because of what sin has done to this world. Jesus' love for his people then puts him into action. He wants to bring peace to his people, so Jesus asks to be shown where Lazarus has been laid. Still deeply moved, he asks for the stone to be rolled away, even though Martha and the rest of the crowd believe the tomb will smell because of the decayed body. Jesus reminds Martha that if she believes, she will see the glory of God. 
after a public prayer of Jesus thanking the Father for listening to his own prayer, he calls into the tomb, telling Lazarus to come out of there. And like the sun coming over the horizon, breaking up a long winter's night, Lazarus comes out of the tomb alive and well. He has been dead for four days, but Jesus, the Son of God, has raised him from the dead for the glory of God. All who are witnesses to this moment would undoubtedly know that Jesus is the Messiah whom the Father has sent out. He is the one who has say even over death and holds the power of salvation in his hands. We see the fullness of God's glory in this story as we see Jesus' demonstration that he is the resurrection and the life. The most glorious work that our Savior then does is resurrecting people and bringing them into eternal life in him. As a member of the Godhead, Jesus has the authority and the power to make the dead live once again and give them new and abundant life. We see in John 11, our Savior grieve over the state of the world that sin has infected and tarnished it. But we also see that he offers to us a solution for this problem. By giving up himself and following us to, and, and, and allowing us to come into union with him, we can join into his glorious resurrection and life. Jesus is offering out his hand to save you from the burdens and traps of your own sin. He has made a way for us to walk into his glorious and wonderful resurrection and enjoy his presence in paradise for all eternity. So then my exhortation, my challenge for you this evening is to put to death your sinful habits and to leave them pinned on the cross. Come to Jesus who has the power to save and embrace the glorious resurrection that Christ has provided for us. This offer of resurrection is available to all people. It isn't simply for Christians. It isn't simply for those who come to church weekly or those who read their Bible daily. But it is for all people for all time. So if you are listening tonight, fall before the foot of the cross and repent for your sins. Trusting in our Savior, Jesus Christ, to forgive you from those sins and give you the power to overcome this world. Then, joining together here in this church with the heavenly choir, let us come to praise our God and truly delight in him as we praise him for his glorious work. Amen. <laughs>